Welcome to the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Old Chick Snow Shit podcast. Today, we have a an inspiring story of midlife or menopausal crisis that actually turned out to be a gift. And with us, we have Karen Arthur, who is an educator, a former teacher turned fashion designer and host of a podcast called Menopause Whilst Black. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy that you could join us because in my research, I listened to your story and while the circumstances of your story were different, there were so many points that very much mirrored my own journey through menopause midlife and kind of recreating myself and my life in that process. And I would love for you to share your story because I think the commonalities, and I'm going to dig into some of the commonalities because I think these are commonalities for a reason. Like we are experiencing this thing because there's something on the other side of it that we need to get to. So can you share a little bit about kind of, you know, when this crisis started and how this crisis started for you and then how you navigated? Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. I want to address the word crisis first. I don't know why I'm having a a A reaction reaction to the word (laughs) in itself. But I suppose if I think about it, it, it will have been a crisis when I hit menopause and my story, certainly it will have been a crisis. But coming out seven years hence on the other side and just thinking on all the things not only that I've done but I'm continuing to do and plan to do it feels such a long time ago it feels like it almost didn't happen but I'm grateful for the experience I'm in the habit of never regretting anything because I think that every single thing that happens to you and everything you do isn't a coincidence and it makes you the person that you are now in this moment so um I was a teacher, as you said, I was an educator. I taught in secondary schools. I I had trained in performing arts, so I'm a former dance teacher. And then I moved across to pastoral leader, which meant that I was in charge of about, you know, a section of children within secondary schools and in charge of their welfare, making sure that they were happy so that they could learn and get their exams and all the stuff that you're supposed to do at school. Right. It was a stressful job, but a job that I loved. I loved, I love teaching, I love education. I think teachers are incredible, under-resourced and underappreciated, but the system, I don't know what the system's like where you are, but certainly in the UK, I think it needs a bit of a rehaul. Anyway, I put my all into that. And the reason I put my all into that is also because I suppose eight to 10 years hence, I had split with my long-term partner. I'd been with him for 20 years. We have two children together. But for a good 10 years of that, it became toxic and abusive. And so I had gathered all my courage, I'm going to say, and decided that I needed my girls not to think that our relationship was normal Mm. and to actually take us out of that relationship so that they could thrive. But all that meant was that I threw all my energies into work because I was petrified of losing my house. I was petrified of not being able to make money. 
I wanted my children to thrive as well as survive. And I completely put myself on the back burner, which many women do. That's what we're praised yes. for. We're praised for giving and nurturing yeah. and putting ourselves last. That's what I did. But I also did it because I, I haven't seen anybody not do it. My mother did it when my mother yeah. divorced from our dad. She did the same thing. Like, where are the role models, you know, yeah. who, who don't do that? So I did that. And then, you know, seven, as I say, eight to 10 years later, as we know, the body keeps school. You know, we can put these things yeah. on the back burner, but eventually they're going to bite us in the bum. And that's exactly what happened. So I was moving into menopause and not recognising it or in denial. It, my daughters had both gone to university. I had the house to myself. I thought I would love it. Within two days, I hated it. I was lonely. It was getting dark. The weather was changing. It's like the perfect storm, really. And I had to, because I didn't have my girls to focus on anymore, I was forced to turn the gaze on myself. And I realised that I didn't really like my life. And I realised mm. that if I got run over, you know, the popular phrase is, if you get run over by a bus, you know, if I got run over by a bus that day or to the next day, I would die unhappy. Mm. But I didn't see any way out. I, I didn't right. see, I didn't recognise my gifts. My self-esteem was at its lowest. I thought I was trapped. I thought I'd have to keep going. And fighting against that meant eventually I became ill and I was diagnosed. I had some time off. I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. And I went to the doctors and I had a list because, you know, you don't want to waste the doctor's time. So you write a list on your phone. <laughs> so, you, you know, you tick all the boxes. And at the bottom of that list was... I think I'm menopausal. The doctor said, but I thought, well, that's, you know, that's minor because my focus was I need to get back to work. I need to make money, you know. Right. And also my focus was what will I do if I don't teach? I had no idea what I would do. It didn't occur to me that I could leave teaching behind. I thought that'll be it. And I suppose I come from a relationship also where, you know, he was saying, you'd never, well, he said, you'll never survive without me. Well, that's clearly not true. So I suppose I, I used teaching as my crutch, my status as yeah. my crutch. And then the doctors offered me antidepressants, as is common for menopausal women in the UK, certainly. And I refused because, not because I'm against medication, but because I thought, well, let me see if I can find to do something else first. And then if it doesn't work, then I'll go back. Mm-hmm. And I was still clinging on to the idea of getting better to go back to work. That was my focus. Right. And then it got to the point where I was like, I don't know, I had something flipped. And I decided, no, I'm going to leave. I am going to have to leave. Not I'm going to leave. I'm going to have to leave. It wasn't an empowering decision. It was a either or. Either the job's going to kill me. This is what I thought was happening. Or I'm, you know, it's just not going to work. I'm going to have to leave. So I left teaching in April, May 2015. And I thought, oh, I'll get better now. <laughs> I honestly thought, right, that's it. You know, the complete opposite happened. Because, of course, when we create a vacuum, when we create this space, then all the stuff you haven't addressed turns around and goes, right, gotcha. It's like... Um, if there are any teachers listening, we work until we have a break and then we're ill in the break. Yeah. So often teachers are, you know, when it comes to summer holidays and when it comes to long holidays, those first few days were actually ill, you know, and right. that had happened to me throughout my teaching career. It's like your body holds off. And then when it's, it sees that you're relaxing, it's like, oh, OK, so this is what's going to happen. Yeah. So that's what happened. 
And I, a couple of other things happened. My aunt passed away suddenly. She was in and out of hospital. And I had spent the time she was in and out of hospital imagining the wonderful, perfect niece I was going to be when she got out. And she didn't come out. And it hit me hard. Guilt, because I hadn't seen her as much as I thought I had. Should have, I mean. Shock, obviously grief. All of those things hit me hard. And also my eldest daughter was at university and she wasn't having a great time. And she had, she ended up having to come home. Mm. But I, I know that what we do is we, we focus on other people. So it's almost like we have this default mode that you're, say you're ill or you're not feeling good, but the minute someone else is ill or someone needs you, suddenly you forget that you're ill. It's like mothers who are ill, bedridden, you know, gone to bed, but still get up to take their kids to school or nursery and then come home and go back to bed again. Yeah. It's that kind of I get mentality. It. Whereas most, you know, male partners will just be ill. And that's a luxury. Yeah. Yeah. Ill. yeah. So all of that was happening in the background. Fun it was. And I was, and I went, I took myself to therapy. I finally gifted myself therapy. And it was a gift because First of all, I thought the therapy would be a six week, eight week job. And it ended up being three years. I, Jennifer's giggling at me. That was me. I'm like, okay, give me, yeah, give me the quick fix. Let me get in, yeah. fix this thing and get yeah, out. I'll like, do this <laughs> and then I'll have ticked that box and then I'll be better. And then I'll be able to do all the things that I've planned. Oh, yeah, I, so re- I so relate. <laughs> and the thing about therapy is certainly in, in our community, I mean the black community, mental well-being. And still be a very taboo subject. And I remember my aunt, who had passed away before, had called me when she found when my mum told her that I was going into therapy to kind of tell me off. She was basically saying, why are you telling a stranger your troubles? You can talk to me. You can talk to your mum. So I, ha- I was carrying that, you know. Yeah. So going to therapy was a bit, also it's expensive. Mm. You know, it's expensive. You have to find the right therapist. I found a woman of colour. I auditioned my therapists, as you should. It's like, you know, you don't go for the first one, you know. And um, I walked into this woman's home and sat down and I knew I'd found the right place. And I didn't realise that that was going to be important. I just thought Mm. it was coincidence. And then you know, a year, 18 months into therapy, it became very clear that it was important that I was working with somebody who was on the same page as me, that I didn't have to explain myself to, didn't have to explain my culture, didn't have to explain my relationship with my mother or colonialism or racism or any of that stuff, because she just knew we already started on the same level. So yeah, it was a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, I was going to say, I, don't, I think I'll pause now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pausing because it's a lot to process. And also, I'm sure you know this, but when you reshare, two things, when you reshare your story, it's a healing. Mm-hmm. But also when you reshare your story, it, it's you're revisiting trauma. Yeah. And so I suppose I want to pause to honour that sharing and to allow people to process because it will, I know it resonates with you Mm. and I know it will resonate with, you know, people listening as well. It's a grief. The grief came from my aunt passing, but my former life and that fear of, I don't know whether you can swear on this, but I'm about to beep it out. What the fuck am I going to do now? What, you know, 
Yeah, I think what you just said is so ridiculously important about pausing to honor, right? Because as women, and we all do this, it's like, we just do what we got to do. And then we move on to the next thing, right? And, you know, when you come through a transition like that, and I know this was true for me, there is a lot of grieving, you know, there's a lot of growing and like pausing to honor everything that you've been through and the person that you are becoming, because it's so easy for us to hang on to what was and who we were, right? And you don't come through all of that as the same person. Like you just don't. You don't. You don't. You don't. I'm not that person. I'm right. not that, you know, and I, I love her. But for a long time, I resented her. I was angry with her for staying in the same, you know, a toxic relationship for so long. I was angry with her for, you know, not having a job, basically not having a contingency plan, allowing myself to be ill, all of those things. Oh, yeah. Of that's all bollocks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, my experience and the people listening have heard me t- say this before, like in the year leading up to my 50th birthday. So I had a long corporate career, like 30 years in corporate. And in the year leading up to my 50th birthday, I found myself unemployed, divorced, empty nester and bedridden with a stress-related illness. And all of those emotions that you are talking about, like every single one of them I can relate to. And, you know, you know, there I was lying in my bed going, well, if I'm not that, who am I? If I'm not a wife, a mother, a corporate executive, who the hell am I? And I realized what was really scary for me is I had no idea who I was. I think that's the thing. We are praised for society trains us to base our worth on the job that we do, the money we make. Success is how much money you make, what your title is, what your education has been, which school you went to. It's outward stuff. It is never what's within. So by the time, menopause for me has been a gift. And I think once we get the handle on how to care for ourselves during menopause, it actually can be a gift. Um, But that said, I want to caveat that with menopause can be a horrendous experience for many women. And hopefully these conversations will change that, Mm -hmm. you know. But certainly what happens is you suddenly don't know who you are. Yeah. You suddenly don't. And I didn't know who I would be other than a teacher. And also being a teacher in certainly in African diaspora households is a very, it comes with status. Mm -hmm. It You know, my mother was proud of the fact, one, that I was a teacher, two, that I lived in London. I was brought up in Oxfordshire, in a small town in Oxfordshire. And so living in that there London, you know, the big city and being a head teacher, sorry, a pastoral leader was a big deal. So I didn't know, I didn't know anything else, but what I did know, and the other thing teachers do is they have so many skills because we, we have so many different transferable skills, but because they're sort of linked in with each other, it's difficult to separate them out. So you don't know what you can do. And actually teaching prepares you with, for a lot of stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So yeah, you have to a little bit of everything to cover all the bases. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I had always been someone who sewed. I, my mother taught me to sew. My parents are from Barbados. And my mother had taught me to sew when I was 15, when I developed hay fever. And the the common practice was to stay away from the evil pollen, to stay in. So I had six weeks of the summer holidays stretching out, not allowed ostensibly to go outside. And so she taught me to use her sewing machine. And I, she brought me some fabric and a pattern. I never looked back. 
So I had always sewn. I'd always mm. you know, made bits and bobs inside. I'd had a little side hustle, which was really a hobby because I wasn't charging enough and I wasn't making any money. But hey, but what it did was that that access to creativity meant that I could decompress after work mm-hmm. or at the weekend. I realised that being able to be creative, and I recommend anybody to make sure that you have something else that you do, that you're not focused on the outcome, that you're that it's the process that's important. Yeah. And so as I started to get better, my relationship with fashion changed. I started to choose clothes because I love them, not based on what I should, what I thought I should wear. I started to kind of ostensibly ignore trends and choose clothes that had memory and reminded me of my auntie or mm. holidays and things like that. And I started to think about into the future and I started to think about how I wanted to curate the next, hopefully, 50 years of my life at the time. I'm now on 60 next week. so <laughs> And um, I decided that I wouldn't do anything that I didn't love anymore. Mm, I love that. And that's, that sounds glib. And it wasn't easy because I still had to, we are, you know, capitalism still it didn't disappear just yep. because I decided I wanted it to. And so I did a bit of supply teaching because I could and I hated it. And I did a bit of, you know, altering clothes, which I also hated. And then I started to, I worked with a business coach, a creative business coach. And gradually, it was like double therapy because I was seeing her and I was also having therapy. So, and she was great because she kind of gently, you know, when people, you don't want to tell someone what to do, but you want to kind of put enough things in their heads so that they have the idea themselves. Right. So it was going from making things to sell to working with women to make bespoke clothing, because my thing is the relationship. It's the conversations. It's uplifting women's self-esteem and Mm -hmm. helping them to feel better about themselves, better in their changing body through clothing. So that's where I ended up, I suppose. And that's changing as well. I have another, I have several chapters in me. (laughs) That's that's amazing. But so what you just said about, you know, you never, you wanted to just do something that you loved, right? Like you didn't want to do anything. And I had very much that same way. I was like, okay, I feel like I've put in the time and this next chapter of my life needs to be about me and what ignites my fire and my passion, right? And I feel like there's a lot of us who are kind of reaching this point with, you know, in midlife where, okay, I can no longer give to everybody else without filling myself up and finding that passion. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is like, okay, well, if it's not this, what, then what? Right. And I know that was for me. I mean, God, I had months and months and months of what the hell am I going to do? Right. I only know one thing. And in fact, even in that time I thought, okay, well, the only thing I can do is another corporate job. And I went, (laughs) got another corporate job and I was about four months into it. And I was like, what the hell did I do? Like, (laughs) this isn't it. And then I had to retreat again and say, okay, this was the fire. So like from your experience, like how do you figure out like, okay, what is that thing? Because most of us have become so disconnected from ourselves, right? In the process of doing everything for everybody else. How in your experience did you connect back to that passion? Or maybe you already had it, like you said, all the way along and it was just like. Well, I was, I was in the middle of depression. So whatever I loved, I didn't love anymore. You know, I didn't really kind of come out of that cocoon until I'd say the end of 22 years, three years later. Mm. But I, I've had a lot of time to think about it since, and I've spoken to a lot of people about it. 
women about it. And I journal a lot. I journal the fuck out of everything. Sorry, part two. I love <laughs> Anything that. that's slightly, I'm there writing it down because it's in us. Yes. What I noticed was the best thing I did was become silent. The best thing I did was learn. Okay, so you said about how you had, you were in bed, you know, you had an illness. I also fell down a hole oh. at the beginning of that same year. A tiny little hole in comparison. It wasn't a trench or anything like that. But it jarred all of my, the bits on one side. So by the time I left teaching, I couldn't walk properly. And the following year, I was walking with a stick. And I honestly feel that our body and our mind has ways of telling us to stop and telling us to slow down. And we just ignore it. Oh. And for years, I was, I was ill most of the time. I don't mean physically. I mean, I was getting the odd injury. I had a cold all the time. I had allergies, lots of allergies. I, if there was something going, I was going to pick it up. I was never operating on, like, I was always offer, operating on about 70%, 60%. I now know. I didn't know that then. I now yeah. know. Yeah. And so literally, it knocked me for six and I thought, oh, well, it'll be fine. It'll go away. But when you get older, these things don't, you know, don't bounce back like you used to. The following year, my aunt passed away. I had, I was the executor of her will. I sold her house. I did all the funeral, of course. I'm the eldest child. So there's that going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Well. Okay, yeah. got that. <laughs> and so, and she left me a bit of money. And it was my youngest daughter's 21st birthday and I said to her we can either have a party you know you can have a party or we can go on holiday and I really wanted her to choose holiday but the holiday would be to Bali to meet her sister and her sister's fiance it turned out in Bali because they were traveling in southeast Asia right yeah so we went there and it was in um, uh, Ubud, I think. And there's a lot of yoga stuff there. And I'm a big into yoga, ex-dancer, ex-dance teacher, big into stretching and yoga. Well, the first class I went to, I couldn't do. I went to restorative yoga. I did about a third of the exercises under par. And I ended up in tears afterwards, sobbing to this poor, unsuspecting, you know, <laughs> yoga teacher who was wonderful. And she said, have you heard of yoga therapy? And I hadn't. And she said, when you get back to London, Google yoga therapy and go there. In the meantime, I've had x-rays. I've had MRIs. I've had to, the doctor, the consultant saying, there's nothing, you know, you'll ha just have to take painkillers, naproxen for the rest of your life. You'll have to walk with a stick. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. We're not doing this. Yeah. There's got to be something else. Yeah. So I went to yoga therapy and I don't know whether you've ever had yoga therapy, but it, it's yoga, but it isn't because it's tiny, tiny. It's breathing. It's yeah. a way of reconnecting because we don't breathe fully, do we? We no. use a small amount of our lung capacity, right? Yeah. So they gave me about four exercises every month, tiny little exercises, breathing techniques to do. It took about 20 minutes in the morning. And I went from walking with a stick to I've just finished a course of contemporary dance recently. Yeah. I love the way that our bodies are always talking to us. And, yeah. you know, for the most part of my life, my body was the stick that held up my head. And the only attention that I paid to it was to beat it into looking a certain way, right? I was an active gym goer. 
right? Like you just had to look a certain way. And beyond that, like I was completely disconnected and going through that process, like of being completely, like you just said, you know, life, the universe, whatever said, no sister, you are going to stop moving now. Mm. And, uh, because there's some stuff you need to see, right. And going through that process where I was bedridden and I had to pay attention to my body. Like I wasn't sleeping. I had all these injuries, like everything was happening. Right. And, you know, when I started to tune in and like, listen, like, just listen, like there's always messages from our bodies. Yeah. Right. But we've never been taught that. Like we have, especially as women, right. Like we've never been taught other than, you know, making sure that it looks a certain way so that it can be appreciated to the male gaze. Right. We haven't been taught about the wisdom of our bodies, which is why so many of us end up getting pulled up short when we reach menopause, because it's so critically important that we start to listen to what's happening this, inside. This is, this is why these conversations are so important because we have, it has to stop with us. Yeah. 100%. We have to get the message out, not just to women now, but to the women who are coming up, the girls who are coming up, yeah. that our daughters, our, you know, our nieces, and also to the other people who support them. This isn't a female conversation. It's a global conversation. And I often, you mentioned my podcast before, and I often will say to people, play it out loud in your kitchen, in your living room. Make sure everybody in your house hears it because Mm. these are conversations that if we're all involved, everybody wins, whether it's from a diversity, from a, you know, different where different cultures whether it's you know in the workplace you know whether it's in schools everybody wins if yeah. it's if it's not something that's if we're not focusing on what women look like you know i am so grateful god so grateful for the fact that i can put one foot in front of the other and that on the whole my body does as i tell it to do it might do it slightly slower you know i might not look as graceful when i'm dancing but, you know, if I choose to run for a bus, I'm not second guessing myself. Right. You know, you know if, if I drop something on the floor, I don't have to look at it for 10 minutes and will it to come back into my hand. <laughs> you know, I, 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 feel like, things. Yeah. And I feel like these things you asked me, you know, how I got back it, you know, what I how I got back into it. I don't remember what you said, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. These things were game changers, being silent extending my stretch practice I think everybody should stretch every day even if it's for a few minutes because our body stops moving and we need it um gratitude consciously thanking whoever you believe in I'm not particularly religious but I do believe that we're I don't believe that it's just us here no so I believe in a higher being a higher power thanking the universe for drawing another breath Find even when you're unfeeling like absolute doo-doo, we can always find something to be thankful for. Oh, yeah. And also affirmations. Affirmations are my babies. I have a little garden. Well, it's not a little, but it's little enough. And a, a little tree at the end of it. And I would look at the tree or go out to the tree and tell it, talk to it and say that I am affirmations. I am strong. I'm, all the stuff that I didn't believe and felt slightly silly doing it. <laughs> yeah. A year later. A year later, I suddenly realised, oh, my God, I am. I am vibrant. I am, you know, I am enough. I am worthy. I am all those things. They are, that's powerful shit. And at the time, I agree. I felt maybe I'm going a bit bad. And now I tell everybody because these things, this stuff 
works, you know? Yeah. I am a hundred percent in agreement with you. Gratitude. It's a daily practice of mine. And some days it's, I'm grateful for this cup of coffee because that's all I can, you know, get yeah. to. It's warm and, uh, you know, and I love the taste of it. Right. And I write, I am statements every day, right? Like reminding myself that I am powerful, right? That I'm a powerful creator of my life, right? I am, you know, part of this powerful universe, like all of that type of stuff, just to literally remind yourself that like, first of all, you're not alone, right? And just like, we have to give ourselves the pep talk every day, right? Because it's so easy to get sucked into the cultural narrative. It's so easy to get sucked into, you know, feeling disempowered, And like, we have to be constantly reminding ourselves, like we are, you know, brilliant, smart, ambitious, kick-ass midlife women, right? And it it can be lonely too as well. And it can be lonely. I think that we are at a, we are in a, there's a shift happening, you know, more and more older women are speaking up. And so that narrative is gradually being picked up. But I think that we still, we have to remember that we still live in a, in a, a world, in a society that values youth based yeah. on the way that you look, Every, you know, right down to when people compliment women saying you look young or have you lost weight or that kind of thing. Yeah. When actually what's wrong with looking old? I went for a, one of the things I do also is modeling. Mm. And I have, I started modeling at 50. So what can I say? Oh, wow. And I spoke to someone today who said they wanted me to go for something. And they said, oh, it's, it's for a grandma. Sorry. And I went, don't be sorry. I am a grandma. I'm 60. Like, it's not getting old. It's a privilege. It's not, a, you know, it's not like a bad thing. So I feel like we are at the vanguard of older women who are saying, no, we're not doing this. We're not going to be invisible. I'm not going to be quiet. I have more experience. I've got more to say. I've got more knowledge and I've got a lot more in me. So look out, yeah. you know, and I feel that, and I don't want younger women to be scared of getting older. I think that in conversations I've had afterwards, I've had messages from younger women saying, I'm not scared anymore. Yeah. Because you can't be what you can't see. So a young black woman seeing an older black woman living her you know, what they say, best life, but certainly going for it. When I was younger, there was no one to look up to, to do that. Exactly, That's important. It's so important because we live like the cultural, cultural narrative is that somewhere around age 50, you just shut everything down and then you wait to coast into the finish line. And then I'm thinking, but okay, that's 30 plus years. You're just going to sit around doing nothing for 30 years. <laughs> like, we're supposed to move over and, and let the right. young people, there's room for all, this is the point. Yeah, It comes from a place of scarcity because it's like, oh, well, let them move over and then the young people can come through. But why can't older people learn from young people? And why can't young people learn from old people? Yeah. And why can't we coexist? Exactly. You know, why does it have to be one or the other? Yeah. That, whole, that whole idea of, you know, that we can't all coexist. Of course we can, and we can learn from each other and we can move forward together, you know? Yeah. I heard you say somewhere about learning to take up the space that you deserve. And that Mm -hmm. really, really struck me because for so many of us, it's like, oh, you know, I'm 50. I'm just going to pull myself back. And it's like, oh no, like you just said, I'm coming out. I'm coming out big. Like this is my time, right? I finally got my shit together. 
<laughs> right? Therapy and everything else, right? And now I'm going to use it. Like, I'm not letting all this go to waste, for God's sakes. <laughs> and I think also, you know, not everybody has to do that. If you want to, no. you know, the point is that you should be able to do what you want to do. Exactly. I decided that I didn't want to. I have all these ideas. I have all this knowledge. So much to give. Mm. You know, why would I be quiet about that? That's what yeah. I'm, my point is that everybody, whatever age you are, whatever stage you are in your life, should have the autonomy to choose how they live their life. I recognise that comes in part from a place of privilege, but I also, in terms of the, the position I'm in, in terms of having savings, in terms of, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, if you have that opportunity, grab it, I would say, grab yeah. it by both hands. Certainly, that's what I am doing. I'm glad that it is having a positive effect on, you know, the people who listen on people who are listening, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I always say, and people probably heard me say this before, is that midlife is the gateway to authenticity. So like, Mm -hmm. it's just being authentically you, no matter what that looks like. And like you said, you get to choose what matters to you, you get to choose how you show up. Right. And just being able to be like that, like a hundred percent me, which, you know, looking back on my own life, I was not me at all. I was some Yes. Perfectly quaffed and shaped version of myself so that I was presentable, right, to the world. And then I had to go through this process of peeling off these layers and taking off these masks and like stripping myself down, you know, to me, like to who I am now. And I actually really like this chick a lot. So, (laughs) um, but one of the things that you mentioned was this idea of women needing to be strong you know what I mean? Like to do for everybody else. And you talked about being in therapy and therapy, allowing you to feel for the first time ever. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit, because I think that a lot of what happens to us at midlife, like what you call it, the crisis, the awakening, like whatever that is, and it feels like a crisis in the awakening. So it's kind of both, right? I feel like a lot of that that happens to us is because we are stuffing so much down. Like we are keeping our voices quiet. We're not sharing our emotions. We're just stuffing, stuffing, stuffing. And then you get to a point where, you know, we were talking about your body says, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And then all of a sudden it starts to come out. Like I had that same experience in a meditation class where I went to a meditation class for eight weeks and sobbed for 90 minutes each week without even knowing what was going on. Right. But again, and I recognize that in that perfectly molded and quaffed version of myself, never let them see you cry. Never, you know what I mean? Just keep on trucking. Like, why do we do this to ourselves? <laughs> right. Like it could be a, because a lot of transition. Because our mothers did it. Exactly. Yes. Because the women around us did it. Yeah. Because we were taught to, because we're never rewarded for showing our true selves. I will say that the moment I decided to moving forward to be honest with the people around me and therefore to be honest with myself, really look at my motivation for being, why am I doing that? Why am I going to that event? Why am I saying yes when I really am screaming no? Because I've always had that. Because I don't want to upset that person. Because I'm people pleasing. Because I am not valuing myself. All sorts of reasons. Because, you know, so... Because we haven't seen it modelled, yeah. Why would what? Why would we? There's no reason to. And yeah. I feel like people are women are waking up. Women are starting to wake up. It's a trickle. 
you know obviously in our circles it feels like everybody but it's not yeah. that's not true you yeah. know because that's all we talk about but mm-hmm. in fact you know it's a trickle but it's happening and it means that women in their 20s there won't be a, a crisis there won't be something called midlife in a sense because they will have their shit together much much younger yeah. you know but we're it's we're rewarded as i said before we are rewarded for putting ourselves last yeah and it's not our you know it's seen as selfish we have to get past that idea of thinking that taking time out for ourselves is a treat it's necessary rest is important and for yeah. black women in particular rest is resistance rest is almost a political act i yeah. would say yeah. But it's important for everyone to schedule rest. Actually, you know, people talk about, oh, how are you? Oh, I'm really busy. Like, that's a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. No. You know, not because at some point your body's going to go, actually, I'm tired. And I think that as I've gotten older, I've recognised that I want to do less. I want to do st- more stuff that I love, but less of it. I go at a much slower pace. As a freelancer, I get to pick and choose. I can stop when I feel like it. And it's, and I don't know, smell the flowers, I suppose. Yeah. Just be more present. And it's a daily practice, don't get me wrong. I have days where I get myself into a state, that's what I did this morning. But on the whole, I'm much, yeah. I find it much easier to tap into something being wrong and then doing something about it. Mm. Waking up, checking in with myself and going, yeah, no, maybe we're not doing that today. Yeah. Changing my plans and, and just enjoying the day noticing things as I'm walking along the road you know life is sweeter Mm. when it's slower right and you're present in it you know like Mm. you're 100% present in it that's that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I have learned is presence because you know before that I was might be doing one thing but I wasn't really there I could be doing something else in my head at the same time right yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about as well, too, because I think this is an also a super important topic, is uh, you starting the podcast, Menopause Whilst Black. And I'd love to know kind of what the impetus for that was. Like why, what made you start this podcast? Well, first of all, I was never a podcaster. I'd never saw myself as somebody who I thought that was for other people. As I said, I'd been talking about menopause, but I didn't see women who look like me. I saw sad white women with their heads in their hands, wearing beige, none of which I do. I hadn't even been thinking about it, you know. But what happened was 2020. (laughs) That's what happened. Uh, We're in a pandemic. Ahmed Aubrey is murdered. Breonna Taylor is murdered. George George Floyd Floyd is murdered. And George Floyd was the, lit the spark. You know, it's not, I couldn't even call it a spark. It was a rage. Mm. social media was crazy my weapon of choice is Instagram and it became very clear that everybody wanted to diversify their feed so I woke up to let's say 400 more followers people who didn't really know me I didn't know them it was weird and a lot of my black sort of friends content creators whatever you want to call us had the same thing and so I'm you know sitting in my kitchen and I'm trying to filter out the news, not watching the news, never watch the video, but you couldn't get away from the images and feeling helpless and angry and wondering how black women 
who are also menopausal and suffering from hot flushes and tingling legs and all the things that knowing that stress can bring on mm-hmm. menopause more quickly, recognising that this is racial trauma that we're seeing. Yeah. Well, I guess I wanted to connect. And so I did a vi- little video and I put it on Instagram and I said the question, if you Google menopause and you click images, what do you see? And you couldn't unsee that there were, it was not diverse. Right. And I started, it resonated with every, lots of people. So I started to do some research. I found out black women are more likely to start menopause up to two years earlier than our white counterparts and to suffer from things like hot flushes for longer. And this was in the Swan report and it was American-based research. I started to, and I, I couldn't understand why this wasn't common knowledge. You know, you read things and you think, well, that's me. I'm a black woman. Why don't I know this? Yeah. I started to look at things like racial weathering, which is the way in which knowing about racism and experiencing racism can have a, an eroding effect on your physical and mental well-being. And I'm putting two and two together and thinking, well, then clearly this is something to do with racial weathering, but there's no research. There's hardly any research about, certainly was, wasn't then, about menopausal women anyway, because apparently we're, um, our hormones make us unreliable. So there definitely wasn't any nuanced research from a race perspective, from a cultural perspective. And then I put a couple of, I started to do my own research because after a while you look around and you think, okay, I'll do it. And out of that was born the podcast. There was a podcast already by a black woman based in America, Omashadi Bernie Scott, who runs Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. And I'd been listening to that for a year, but it's very US centric. And I wanted something for UK women. I wanted something that centered us. So I started an Instagram page and then the next thing you know, I bought, a, you know, a, what are those things called? Microphone. And the next thing you know, I was YouTubing how to do a podcast. And the next thing you know, I was doing a podcast and it took off. People, two black women talking about menopause is, was new, was groundbreaking, certainly in the UK. And we're in our third, we're about to start our third season. I'm interviewing now. Nice. And these are conversations that need to happen. We, yeah. The more stories you hear from different people, first of all, you recognise that we have so much commonality, but also when you hear of someone who has a similar experience to you, if they are someone who maybe mm-hmm. comes from the same country or parents have the same experience, mm-hmm. you can hear the same story seven times and the eighth time it might resonate because that person looks like you. That's yeah. why we exist. Exactly. That's why it exists. And I, I love, oh my God, I love the conversation. It's not all singing and dancing. It's not sponsored. I don't have any sponsorship. Wouldn't mind any sponsorship, by the way, guys, if anyone's <laughs> listening. It's a passion project. I pay for it. And I do it because I love it. And it's important. Yeah. You know, we yeah. all know. It's so important for us to be having all of these conversations about menopause. Because, I mean, I think the UK is light years ahead of where we are in North America, for sure. So um, I hear. So I hear. Yeah. And so then even diversifying it even further into the conversations about how different cultures experience it, um, and especially in the Black culture, like growing up in a Caribbean household, I watched the strong woman syndrome play out in front of me. I did not know menopause happened to any one of them. Right. Like because they just kept on keeping on. I mean, like I look at my aunts who are like uber successful businesswomen, Right. Who just like, you know, didn't miss a beat. And I'm then I'm like, well, how come like I basically can't get out of bed and they ran whole businesses through this whole thing, right? 
But then when you have the conversations later, it's like, I didn't have the space. I didn't have the time. Right. Like I and we always, yeah, it's drummed into us that we have to be much, much better. We have to be yes. twice better, three times. Right. I heard those, you know, my father was, if I came second, why didn't I come first? You know, always. Yeah. Of course, we're not going to let go of that stuff. I'm here to tell you it, it doesn't serve us. We need to recognize that in the middle of that has to come rest and that we model what we want for those coming after us. I exist because I say what I say because for my mother, for my aunt, for my ancestors, for the people, for the women who weren't afforded the luxury of being able to do what they wanted to do, being able to rest. That's why, that's why these conversations exist. And I'm excited for my daughters. I'm excited for the people, the women come in behind us because there will be no stopping them. (laughs) No, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I watch my daughter watching me having this experience and I, like, I can see she's already light years ahead of where I was at her age, right? I'm like, wow, you got this. Oh, this conversation has been so good. I love part I, two, baby. I love that. Like this is, you are a perfect example and an inspiration of, you know, following your passion and like putting your energy into what's important to you. So from the podcast to fashion design, I even saw that you went back to dancing. Like this is what we are supposed to be doing is like surrounding ourselves with all these things that light us up, that ignite our passion, that feel meaningful and important to us. Cause that's what this time of our life is about, right? We are the role models and we need our daughters and our granddaughters and all the other women watching to see us doing it so that we can change the paradigm of what it means to be a midlife woman, right? And to go through menopause, for God's sakes. <laughs> and I would say to anyone listening, I've remembered the question you asked me ages ago <laughs> about how to bring, you know, joy and creativity back into your, I would yeah. say, think back to what you used to love when you were little. What did you love? I loved dancing. I loved art. I loved you know, playing with fabric. If you think about the stuff that you love, they're the things that you turn to. And not thinking, oh, that means I'm going to become an artist. I'm going to make money out of it. It's not about that. Make a conscious decision to bring some pocket of joy back into your life. And it becomes infectious. It becomes infectious, honestly. That is some fabulous advice to end this conversation on. Everybody listening, I encourage you to go. You're on Instagram, you said. What's your Instagram handle? So I have two Instagram handles, of course, don't I? So I'm the Karen Arthur and I am menopause whilst black. The Karen Arthur is the fashion-y, wear your happy one and menopause whilst black is menopause and lots of other stuff as well. So it's, I'm, yeah, I'm two. But that's where I hang out mostly. And if you want to see my website, my website, just Google thekarenarthur.com. Amazing. Well, we'll make sure all of that gets in the show notes. I encourage everybody to go follow all of your Instagram handles. I have followed them. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I love it. So thank you for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for asking me. I've enjoyed it. Another one, please. (laughs) Yes. Okay. And for those of you listening, if you like what you heard, please feel free to leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in. 